There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 30th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The latest homeless figures show how more people than ever before are accessing emergency accommodation. 1,709 families have no home this morning. With less than a month before Christmas, some 5,999 adults and 3,725 children will be provided with temporary accommodation. Responding to the figures and how almost 10,000 people will sleep in hotels, hostels and B&Bs tonight, Minister Owen Murphy he said, of course there is a housing crisis. Nobody will argue with that. But he also said that the government is making progress on the issue. Few will understand what the minister means when he says progress is being made, while the number of people who are homeless has risen by 15% in a year. Let's talk about this with Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing, Ono Brin, who's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme as always. Uh, perhaps we should explain what the minister means by homeless. He's talking about a fall in the number of families who have presented as homeless uh, and it's uh, the third consecutive month that this has been the case. But does it matter when there's more people homeless than ever before? Well, first of all, uh, there are more families sleeping in emergency accommodation tonight than uh, are in the Minister's figures and it's it's one of the great problems we have at the minute. Look, there's a very worrying trend. So there was a a significant jump in 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 adults in emergency accommodation uh, in the last two months by about 130 the figures released yesterday do show a small drop in the number of families and children. Uh, and obviously, if that's the case, that's very welcome. But uh, uh, there are large numbers of families who the minister has removed from these figures, but who are still living in temporary transitional accommodation, and according to the local authorities, still accessing homeless services. So by my calculation and based on information that I've got from local authorities, the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive, and also a couple of other government departments, we're probably looking at a figure closer to 12,000 living in emergency accommodation whether funded by the Department of Housing, Justice or, or Children and Youth Affairs at the minute. Uh, but whatever way you count the figures, the problem is getting worse month on month and more real people, mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, uh, are spending months and months and in some cases years uh, in insuitable, unsuitable temporary accommodation 
because they simply cannot get access to safe and, and affordable accommodation. Okay, and if the figure is 12,000, uh, you're talking about 4,000 children or, or thereabouts uh, who don't have a place they can call home. Uh, even if the figure is just under 10,000, which is the official figure, it's almost 4,000 children. It's 3,725 officially recorded as homeless. Will Santa know where to find them uh, when it comes to Christmas when they don't have a home? And again, I suppose this is one of the real uh, human tragedies of, of this homeless crisis. Let's keep in mind when, when Fine Gael first took office uh, seven years ago, uh, child homelessness was virtually unknown. Uh, Focus Ireland, for example, who would have been the leading charity, would have had a small number of families um, uh, uh, with children experiencing homelessness. But it was really something that was the exception. Uh, and yet we've seen over the last number of years uh, a growing problem now. Obviously, the families themselves and many of the voluntary sector organisations who will be providing accommodation will do everything they can to make Christmas uh, as normal for for these children. Uh, But but the idea that you could be waking up, for example, on Christmas morning in a hotel, in in a B&B, or even for single people, you know, particularly Mm. given the fact that the majority of the homeless population are under the age of of 24, if you're a young person and you wake up on Christmas morning in a dormitory-style hostel in Dublin City, far away from family or friends, you know, that's, that, that, that really is a tragedy. Here in Dublin, and, I, and I'm sure in parts of of uh, and Mead, where your listeners are there, are, there are lots of charity efforts on Christmas Day to try and kind of counteract that. We have a number of very big kind of Christmas Day dinners here. Some local businesses do it. We often have uh, uh, activities in the Mansion House sponsored by the mayor. But I suppose it, it goes back to the point, Michael, that we talk about every time I'm on your show, Mm. Uh, Owen Murphy keeps telling us he's making progress, yet we don't have enough investment in social affordable housing. We don't have enough action on bringing vacant homes back into use. Uh, uh, and we don't have enough action uh, on stopping the flow of families from becoming homeless in the first place. And until the minister starts to get those three key things in order, uh, unfortunately, month on month, you're going to be inviting people onto your show uh, talking about why things are getting worse and not better. Uh, I saw Bono on the television singing Simon Garfunkel songs recently, uh, an album released uh, which would make you uh, think this is a, a band aid type of effort and indicative of the scale of the problem. I get very cynical when I when I see what Bono's mm. doing. Uh, if he hadn't relocated his tax affairs to Luxembourg, uh, he and his colleagues would be making a far larger tax contribution in Ireland, and that money could be used to tackle homelessness. So I don't take that too seriously. Mm. But the issue is this: for months after month on month, we've been told by the government that money isn't a problem. We've been told that they want to have the largest building and buying program in the history of the state, and they're telling us that no idea from the opposition will be disregarded in the attempt to tackle this crisis. And, you know, a single largest cause of family homelessness, as you know, because I tell you every time I'm on the show, is vacant possession notices to quit by landlords who are exiting the market. We've proposed time again, and before Christmas, I hope we're going to be able to table this piece of legislation again, which will basically say to, to buy to let landlords, landlords who benefited from tax breaks when they bought their properties during the boom, if you're under pressure from the banks and you want to sell your property, that's fine, mm. but you have to sell it, sell it with a tenant in it. That would reduce the level of family homelessness uh, because it would encourage other landlords to buy those properties, etc. So there are straightforward actions the government could take, uh, but they're refusing to take. Likewise, again, we talk over and over again about the vacant homes. Loud County Council ran the pilot scheme. They did a very, very good job using the buy and renew funding from the department. Uh, and I think they got over 40 vacant properties back into use. But that hasn't been rolled out across the rest of the country. 
uh, and even the pilot scheme in Laos had a limited amount of money. So if government was serious, if government was saying, okay, you know, we have, uh, you know, 11 or 1,200 uh, families in emergency accommodation, if they really wanted to go and identify 11 or 1,200 houses, particularly among the vacant housing stock or turnkey properties that have been offered for sale uh, by banks and funds at the minute, they could do it. Again, yeah. another figure I've said to you before, 1,800 vacant homes have been offered to government to purchase in the last two years. They bought less than 500 to date. But are we, that again shows you the lack of urgency in their approach. But are, are we that bad? Uh, I mean, we're a small country that's just come out of uh, the worst recession in living memory and we're in a recovery process uh, as such. This is a relatively new problem and brought on to a large degree because of uh, the crash. Uh, and you mentioned Luxembourg uh, a moment ago. That's a, a very wealthy country uh, that hasn't seen the same type of problems that we've experienced in this country. And, and homelessness is worse in Luxembourg. I mean, if you look around the world, uh, we certainly aren't unique in having a homelessness problem. If you take a, a country like Guinea, there's nearly 70% of the population who are homeless, or Grenada uh, in around the same, Egypt just under 20%. Uh, but it's not just these poor countries uh, that are, are seeing problems. Uh, I mean, the homelessness problem in France is worse than it is in Ireland. In Australia, it's worse than it is in Ireland. In the United Kingdom, it's far worse than it is in Ireland. And in Sweden, which is seen as one of the best social models in the world, uh, they've got a, a greater homelessness problem than we would have. They, they, they don't. Uh, and part of the problem is is when uh, countries talk about homeless, they count it in different ways. So if you go to the north of Ireland, for example, when they talk about homeless, they don't just talk about people, for example, who are in emergency accommodation. They also talk about people who are living in overcrowded accommodation, people who are living with family and friends, and people who are sofa-surfing. So when you when you, you compare, I suppose, at a superficial level, the headline figures, it looks like, for example, Britain has a much higher problem or, or Sweden does. Mm. But actually when you drill 0.46 in the United Kingdom in 2016. But, but my, 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 my point is this. If you look in England, if you look at what they count in homelessness, everybody who's sofa surfing, everybody who's living with family and friends, everybody who's in insuitable or inappropriate accommodation is deemed homeless. We don't do that here. We only count the number of people in emergency accommodation. Now... Your core point is right, however. Homelessness is a problem everywhere. There, there is no doubt about that at all. But what I'd say is a couple of things. <laughs> First of all, we're the fastest-growing economy, uh, uh, or one of the fastest-growing economies in the OECD at present. There has been significant resources available to government in the last number of years to try and start to tackle this problem. But also, uh, 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 other countries who are, are in a more precarious financial position than ours have done this better. So countries like Finland, for example, have virtually eradicated long-term homeless. Mm. And it's not because they're wealthier than us. It's not because they're, uh, uh, they had less of a recession. It's because politicians prioritise these things. I mean, for example, pensioner homelessness. Mm. Pensioner homelessness has increased 60% in the last two years. Now, the idea that we would allow uh, our, our grandmothers or grandfathers live in emergency accommodation is appalling. Yep. It's a relatively easy problem to fix. There's a small number of them. But again, it's not been prioritised politically. So, you know, what did Leo Varadkar announce as his, his, his big ticket item uh, at his Ardesh? Massive tax breaks uh, uh, and tax cuts, the vast majority of which will go to very, very uh, wealthy people who mm. don't need them. I think most Irish people having a, a basic sense of decency would say, Do you know what? Prioritise ending child homelessness. Prioritise ending pension mm. homelessness. Use the money that you have to get rid of that. 
and nobody's asking the government to solve this problem overnight. Uh, yeah, well, they've, I, been power, I, they've been in power for mm, seven years. Yeah. We've we've been in a, in a positive economic situation for two or three, and still the problem is getting worse. No, fair enough. And I, I mean, in the middle of the summer, I do find it shameful to think that there's so many people in the situation. I think probably like me, a lot of people think coming into Christmas uh, it's all the more striking. And we think of our own traditions in our families at Christmas, whether that's getting up and making a fry up for breakfast or religious services or the traditional Christmas dinner, sitting down for television and all the things that you do. You might sleep on the sofa or whatever it is, have a, a, a few drinks, have friends around and people not in a position to do those things and to share what is traditionally family time. And I knew that we'll be talking about it this morning and then got up early and had a, a look at the figures around the world because I, I thought, is it just here? Is it unique to here? And I, as I mentioned, it's not. And uh, I'm looking at a, a chart uh, that I found on Wikipedia and I know that uh, it's not the most trustworthy source in the world, uh, but it is very interesting. And I've gone through some of the figures with you. And I mean, it's one thing when you talk about Guinea and Grenada and these poor countries and these huge uh, uh, figures, uh, the huge percentage of people in those countries that are homeless. Uh, but it's not just wealthy countries that are tackling this because uh, according to this chart, uh, you've got countries like Brazil, where there's practically no homeless problem, or Chile, uh, where there's practically no homeless problem. South Korea, for example, there is no homeless problem. And again, for example, if, if, if you take the first two of those countries that you mentioned, part of that is because they had governments for over a period of time decide that they would prioritise the eradication of poverty and, uh, and with that the eradication of homelessness. Um, but I suppose... One of the, 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 the problems we have is is at this time of the year, lots of people think exactly like you do, Michael, and, mm. and rightly so, because they, 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 they see the, the human tragedy of, of not being able to enjoy Christmas. Now, what a lot of people do, and I think it's a very good thing, is they put a little bit of extra money into charities to, to try and uh, alleviate that. All I would say to people this year is take one step beyond that. Don't just assist in terms of the immediate charity response. But think very carefully in terms of, of the next election, because we could have an election early next year. And whatever political party you're, you're inclined to vote for, mm. be demanding that the candidates who will be knocking your doors in the general election uh, are going to make this a priority. The ending of child homelessness and pensioner homelessness, the reduction in adult homelessness. I mean, it, 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 one of the, 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 the tragedies but of people it is, will vote to take the burden off the squeezed middle. I mean, that's... Well, can I say can I say this? People vote for all sorts of reasons. I, I, knew, mm. I, know, I know that because I have to go out and convince them to try and vote for me in elections. But but we are a small country. Uh, the the numbers of people who are homeless, while far too high, uh, aren't that large in terms of the resources it would require to tackle this problem. So if you're asking me, could a government, if it had a political mind, to start reducing the number of families becoming homeless and getting families out of emergency accommodation far more quickly than is the case? Yes, they could. Mm. And again, Finland is a really good example. There's a country that decided, uh, at both a, at a society level and a government level, you know what? This isn't acceptable. Children spending their third year in a row, for example, as is happening here in Dublin, uh, their ter- third Christmas in a row uh, in emergency accommodation isn't acceptable. And while we want our politicians and government to do a whole range of things, mm. one of the things we want them to do is deal with this problem and then month on month, year on year, reduce it to, as it is in the case, near zero 
mean, Finland has virtually no long-term homelessness. Okay, uh, well, I, I know you say they count them differently, their, but uh, this chart that I have, however trustworthy it is, would it sort of indicate that uh, the problem in Finland is similar to that here. Uh, 0.13% of the population compared to 0.17%. The really, the, re- the really significant thing, and again, keep in mind, Finland, a little bit like other European countries, includes a larger category of people. Mm. So they're coming out as the same percentages, despite the fact that they count different categories, that's better. But the really important thing about Finland, because look, there will always be homeless people. The issue is how long are they homeless? So if you, for example, as is the case in Scotland, can reduce the amount of time that people in emergency accommodation to 24 Mm. weeks, right? So you're only in emergency accommodation for emergency and then you're housed. That is a much, much more successful way of managing a problem that exists everywhere. We have families in emergency accommodation for two to three years. Mm. And that's, that's becoming the average for many families. So we need this to be prioritised at a political level as well as a charity level and people to be saying we will no longer accept uh, 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 people uh, uh, spending Christmas or need any other night of the year in emergency accommodation. And, uh, I, take it if we could learn, uh, I take it if we could learn from countries at a, a political level, again, just looking at this chart, uh, that the minister wouldn't go far wrong uh, by asking the Mexicans for some advice. Well, I, I'd say this, right? That your best, if you're looking for comparisons, you're best looking at countries like yourselves. So small mm. uh, continental European countries with similar sized economies and similar, similar, similar types of societies. And sure, but isn't it bizarre that there's very few homeless people in places like Mexico or Brazil? I, I, yeah. I, I would oh. say there's far greater levels of homelessness than your Wikipedia chart is suggesting. Look, there's, there's a really mm. great organisation across Europe called FIANSA, uh, and they produce very reliable cross-country comparison data uh, both on, on adult homelessness and, and, mm-hmm. and child homelessessness. So uh, I'm not so sure the data you're looking, looking yeah, at is, yeah, is no, that I'm accurate. Not that it is, but yeah. my, my, point, my point is this. The Finnish Embassy, for example, recently brought over some of their leading homelessness experts facilitated by Focus Ireland, many people invited. Uh, so, so there are countries that do this better and have got a grip on this. Uh, the problem is the measures they took are measures, despite many of us in the opposition and the doll uh, or in the NGO sector out on the streets, Proposing such alternatives, government has been turning a blind eye to. And I have to say, every time Owen Murphy comes out and tells us that the government is making progress on a day when the figures are showing that they're not, I think further undermines both his and the government's credibility. We need to do things differently if we're to get a grip of this problem. Okay, got to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us, though, as always. Ono Brain is Sinn Fein's spokesperson on housing planning and local government. Michael Reed on LMFM. Some 500 ambulance personnel are planning a one-day strike on the 19th of December. It'll take place from 7 in the morning till 5 o'clock in the evening. These are members of the Psychiatric Nurses Association branch of NASRA. That's the National Ambulance Service Personnel Association. And we're joined by Sinead McGrath, who's its chairperson. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us What's at the root of this, Sinead? Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, this stems back to the fact that we, as Amazon service personnel, decided we wanted to choose a different union from the traditional unions that would have been offered to us to represent our workforce needs. Um, the union we went to at that time, which was t- uh, eight years ago, was t- 2010, were the PNA. Um, they are a recognised trade union. They have negotiation rights, etc., etc., we went to them, they were happy to take us on um, and we've asked the um, we've asked the HSE to recognise them as our union of choice. Unfortunately, they have consistently refused to do so. Now, during the last eight years, we have continued, um, as members of the PNA and me as um, one of the committee, 
to represent our members, to take workforce issues up to third-party negotiations and outside. Um, We've been very, very successful. We've also influenced some of the changes in ambulance service policy that have happened over the last eight years, such as more vehicles on the road, more paramedics coming into the service. However, the HSE and National Ambulance Service in turn have refused to recognise us as the union of choice. Right. And the HSE recognises the PNA in representing psychiatric nurses, but not in representing ambulance service personnel. That's correct, yes. But it recognises the SIP2 trade union and it says that uh, to recognise a different trade union that would undermine the relationship that it has with SIP2. Well, they recognise SIP2 and they recognise Unite as well, who are often forgotten in this argument. Um, the argument that they give back to us that it would undermine the relationship they have with SIP2 doesn't really hold water because, for example, within the Psychiatric Nurses Association, um, they obviously represent psychiatric nurses and intellectual disability nurses, but SIP2 also re- um, represents some of them, as do the INMO. So they work with three unions for that group of workers. Why can they not work with three unions with um, ambulance service personnel? We're not a huge group of people. Mm. You know, there's just over 1,800 of us within the service. There's just over 1,300 of us working frontline or providing pre-hospital care. So I sort of, to me, that argument doesn't stand up when they're doing it in other disciplines and in other professions. But the vast majority of personnel are members of SIP2, aren't they? Um, there would be a lot of them in SIP2, but mm. we also have a huge cohort of members or um, people within the service who are non-unionised, who have chosen not to join any union at all. Mm. So. Uh, and 500 members out of uh, that force of uh, about 1,800, uh, you've uh, engaged in industrial action since uh, early October, uh, to little effect, I take it. Well, that would be um, what's been put out to the media from a lot of sources. We would strongly disagree with that. Mm. I mean, we have clear evidence that uh, the last phase of our action was actually to um, ask our members to engage in an overtime ban. Mm. And that's that's going on a number of weeks now, isn't it? That's going on since uh, November the 7th. Now, Mm. we actually terminated it this week because we felt it was having a seriously detrimental effect on the provision of services to people throughout the country. We know for a fact that, you know, on on numerous occasions, the ambulance crews were down by at least 50% in Cork City and County. Um, There's been RRVs used throughout the country instead of ambulances, which is, uh, um, I suppose it it shows that there has been a service uh, deployed. Right but now, the, but an RRV can't I, I imagine people are getting very worried now to think that uh, the service uh, would have been reduced by 50% because of a ban on overtime or not participating yeah. in overtime. But if you're going to withdraw labour altogether uh, from yeah. 7 in the morning until 5 in the evening, uh, that presents a potentially serious situation. It does, but we have said from the get-go, and it remains our bottom line, that we are open to talks. We are completely willing. In fact, we are desperate to talk to them. We want to get this resolved you know, any person who's signed up to be a paramedic, an advanced paramedic or an emergency medical technician doesn't want to go down this line. Ultimately, what we want to do is to serve the public. We want to help people in sometimes the gravest hour that they're ever going to have mm. in their lives. So this is not something that we've engaged in lately. We've been stonewalled throughout this process. And if you want to take it away from the ambulance side of things, this is a basic employment right. It's to join a union of your own choosing the way it currently is, we are being told, join this union or nothing. That's it. And that cannot be right. I mean, surely two heads or three heads in this case would be better than one. 
I don't really see the problem. We're reasonable people. We are working for the better of betterment of the service and the provision of services to people throughout the land. We don't want to be on strike. We really do not want to be, you know, standing at a gate when we could be out attending to someone's mother, sister, brother, whoever. We want to talk to them and we want to provide services. So come talk to us. We're here. All right. Well, there's two and a half weeks to find a a resolution uh, or else uh, that action won't take place. All right, Sinead, uh, thank you indeed for speaking to us uh, this morning. Sinead McGrath, National Chairperson of the PNA branch of NASRA. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing, a 34-year-old man has appeared in court charged with dangerous driving causing the death of Stephen Marin in Castle Blaney on Tuesday night. The accused, James Tomney, with an address in County Mar Armagh, faces two charges, one of dangerous driving causing the death of Mr Marin and the second alleges reckless endangerment of a Garda officer who was holding on to the vehicle in an attempt to prevent himself from falling from the fast-moving car. The doll was told yesterday that in isolation this story is horrendously tragic and how the suspect was on the run for a number of years and well known to both the Gardaí and the PSNI. Fianna Falls' Derek Leary said, however, that it was not an isolated incident and he told the doll that the death of Stephen Marin was not the first time that questions have been asked in this Garda district about how known criminals have been allowed to walk the streets and to drive on our roads. The family and the public need to know and need to know this will not happen again. Because there are similar cases and we're all very familiar with this uh, in this house, the tragic death of Shane O'Farrell. The driver of the car that killed him had over 42 serious convictions and was well known on either side of the border. And the O'Farrell family have been stoic brave and courageous in their search for justice for Shane. And I acknowledge in particular the role the Deputy McGuinness has played in this. They've made complaints to the Gardaí, to GSOC, to the DPP and to the Department of Justice and Quality. They've been requesting a commission of inquiry into his death and this House passed a motion to allow this to happen. Can you confirm that that commission will proceed along with the wishes of as expressed by this House? Can I say that... Um that the O'Farrell case, which is also uh, an absolutely tragic one, um, uh, is the subject of a GSOC uh, investigation. Uh, and, of course, when that report from GSOC is available to the, uh, to the Minister, uh, we will, of course, take the appropriate action at that stage. Um, can I say, in relation to, to this tragedy that happened uh, to the Marin family, uh, this case has also been referred to GSOC. Uh, and so I, I am somewhat limited in terms of what I can say. Thanks to Simon Coveney uh, responding uh, to a leader's question uh, from Fianna Fáil's uh, Dara Cleary in the Dáil yesterday. Shane O'Farrell's mother, Lucia O'Farrell, is on the line with us once again this morning. And good morning to you, Lucia. And uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with uh, the response uh, to your hope for an inquiry into your son's death from the Thanks to yesterday. Uh, hello, Michael. Yes, of course. First of all, can I express my deepest sympathy to the family uh, of Stephen Marin, uh, our thoughts are with him, and also to the, the brave action of the Garda, and we wish him a speedy recovery, that of uh, Michael Devlin. Mm. And uh, when I heard what he had done, I only wished it was him who had stopped the car uh, driven by uh, Zygamantis Gradutska, and uh, uh, no doubt he would have seized it uh, an hour earlier and, and saved Shane's life. And Zygamantis Gradutska. 
Duska was driving a, a car that killed your son, Shane. That's right, but it had been stopped an hour earlier, driven by an uninsured driver. And if I think it, the calibre of the man, Garda Michael Devlin, had stopped that car, that car would have been seized. He would have done his duty. So Why I so? Think, just, just, just tell our listeners why that would well, have been the, the case car, or might have been the case. The, the car was pulled up. It was uh, known to the Gardaí. The registration was flagged on their system as being one of, of uh, concern regarding drugs. There were three occupants in the car. <coughs> Excuse me. Three Lithuanian heroin addicts in the car. The driver was uninsured. There was no NCT on the car. It was extremely defective. And this car was allowed to proceed. And within an hour, struck Shane from behind, carried him on the roof, bonnet and windscreen, and left him to die alone on the road. Now, I spoke with the PSNI, and they said, if we had pulled that car up, the only place he would be going was with us. And... Uh, Yet, uh, you know, nine miles down the road, he was allowed to proceed and kill our son. So uh, I feel that the um, proactivity of the of uh, Garda Devlin, I think he was a very brave Garda, and, and uh, I'm just sorry it wasn't him that pulled that car up and he would have done his duty. But um, I, I think it, the case of, of, of uh, Stephen Maron has all the hallmarks of, of, uh, of Shane's case. Mm. A man at liberty that should have been in jail. Um, I must say that I am I'm pleased to see that the warrant, even though it, it, it was seven years, was activated when he killed. In our case, that didn't take place. There was suspended sentence, not activated uh, for the man. He was allowed to uh, roam freely uh, after killing Shane, and uh, at least his family have the comfort of not meeting him in the community. Mm. Uh, I see there was no application for bail, and he was remanded in custody yesterday evening. And in our case, the Garda Shiokana said... And Garda Shikana are not objecting to bail, and he was allowed out and about, which was very disrespectful, and also a big risk to the community. Mm. But I think there's a, a very, very serious question over uh, Monaghan, Louth area, where people can come and go, go over the border. And this has been a big concern to me, because in our case, as you are aware, or your listeners are aware, two weeks before he killed, he was arrested in Northern Ireland. Now, at this stage in the south of Ireland, he was in multiple breaches of bail, and if he committed a theft, had to be returned to Monaghan Circuit Court to Judge O'Hagan. Indeed, anywhere on the Northern District, Donegal, Sligo, Cavan, Monaghan. And this did not happen. Now, when he was arrested in Newry, the PSNI contacted the Gardaí to get his Carrickmacross address and to get a list of his criminal history. And this information was faxed through to Newry, to the PSNI constable. And the Gardaí, on knowing he was in Newry on three counts of theft, should have looked for mutual assistance, a European arrest warrant, and returned him to Judge O'Hagan. So they talk about, you know, all these uh, documents on shared communication. In fact, I have two here in front of me. One is Cross-Border Policing Strategy 2010, and the other one signed off by their predecessor, uh, sorry, Cross-Border Policing Strategy 2016, signed off by George Hamilton and Noreen O'Sullivan. And if I just may read the paragraph here, it says, this is an appropriate time to take our first trench of work in the next stage and coordination of future joint activity in critical areas such as community relations, rural policing, intelligence sharing and emergency planning. Our commitment is that we will work in partnership to bring offenders to justice with the objective of making the island of Ireland safer, more peaceful and, and a confident society. Now, the island of Ireland, if somebody uh, goes across the border and is wanted here, there is, there is a, a legislation there, there's an intergovernmental agreement between the two states to, to, for mutual assistance. 
And in our case, that that broke down. In fact, I, I cannot have fault with the PSNI in view that they did make the Gardaí aware that they had him in Northern Ireland, mm. but the Gardaí failed to act. So you, one would wonder in this case, and we can't discuss it at length because yep. it's in the courts, we would wonder what what actually happened there. But well, I, your I, case ended up in the courts uh, as well, and you've a, a number of questions outstanding, which is why you want this Commission of Investigation. You want, as you've been explaining to us, to know why this man, Zygmantas Gridzuska, was at liberty to kill your son uh, and to flee the scene and then you want to know why he wasn't sent to prison that he was given the option of being extradited rather than do prison time and he went back to Lithuania Uh, and I imagine that there's a lot of similarities in terms of the questions that you have that the Marin family have in terms of the events that led up to the fatal incidents. Uh, and we heard the Thalnish there saying that their case is now going to be referred to GSOC. Uh, and that's preventing you from getting the answers to the questions that you want. That is your case, I think, at least. Uh, would you be concerned that the Marin family may end up asking the same type of questions that you're asking today and years from now? Well, firstly, they're hiding behind this is this is with GSOC. That's their go-to. Now, we can't discuss this, this is with GSOC. That's certainly not the case because in the Sergeant Morris McCabe case where Michael Clifford wrote on it, an investigation, the O'Higgins Commission could go ahead despite Gardaí under investigation. So that doesn't hold any water. That doesn't stack up at all. So that's just an excuse. So they're using that as an excuse. I think it's very sad for the Marin family now to hear this is with GSOC and hear that a family down the road have, a, have a, an investigation with GSOC in, in a similar incident in the death of a, a loved one for the last uh, seven years, you know. And I think it's not good enough because when somebody has done something wrong, the investigation should be effective and efficient and it, it, it should be done speedily to prevent, uh, you know, the appearance of collusion. And we have, we have in our case, and this is what I believe is, that, is, is why we don't have justice so far on, is that there's collusion between state agencies. Now, that's an appalling vista to, to even perceive that, but there's collusion between state agencies to protect the Gardaí and their failure. And if they address the case of Shane O'Farrell, and they, they'll come out with all these statements in the doll, we're going to look into this, we're going to learn from mm. it. But if they genuinely want to learn from it and prevent it happening again, the first thing they need to do is to recognise it and say, yes, there's failure here. We need to address this. We need to investigate into it to see where the, the faults lay and to, to make sure they don't happen again. And if, are you suggesting that they're covering that up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've written recently to Commissioner Harris. He has information on his desk. It was hand-delivered to the headquarters of of a gross failure. And those officers are on duty and, in fact, have been promoted. Now, you might not be aware of this, but on the 14th of June, when the vote took place in the Dáil, my daughter was there, and I was in the Shannon. And Charlie Flanagan, Minister for Justice, walked over to me and he said, I want to express my sympathy. And I said, I don't want your sympathy. I want justice my son and we're you know this has gone on far too long you have the evidence and he said oh there's there's a, an investigation now going on by GSOC and I said yes I said, into, into minor discipline, a slap on the wrist. I said, that's not an appropriate outcome for what happened to Shane and or what followed. But, but I said to him, there are other areas which GSOC aren't investigating and, and you haven't put any mechanism in place to address that. But I said, mm. Minister, I have one question for you. And he said, what is it? I said, are you aware there was deception in the court? 
in the prosecution of this case? And he said, yes, I heard that. Now, Michael, it's very concerning that we have a Minister for Justice who heard there was deception in the court and the court was misled by the prosecution, by Shane's voice, by your listener's voice here today, by you, Michael. The court was misled to protect the Guardian and their failure. So there is an appalling vista of collusion by state agencies in this country. OK, and just uh, for the sake of our listeners, it, it was in June that the Dáil voted in favour of a, a commission of investigation to get to the bottom of those questions that you're asking, which seem all the more pertinent this morning, than, uh, un- unfortunately, than they did last week. But it's also shown disrespect to the people in the Dáil. We have a two-to-one vote for a public inquiry, and in a democracy, that would be respected. Okay. But in this country, we don't have a democracy, we have a dictatorship. Lucia, I have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank Thank you very much indeed. Lucia O'Farrell, mother of the late Shane O'Farrell. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Eileen was first off the mark this morning, listening into your interview regarding homelessness and says what really concerns her is the number of children who are homeless. She says every child deserves a safe, warm home. There was a time in Ireland, she remembers, that the only people who were really homeless were those who maybe had personal difficulties or addictions but now it's awful to see that families and children particularly are affected Mm. and feels that more needs to be done. Yeah, and uh, all all the more striking as we were saying earlier on at this time of the year. Uh, On via Twitter uh, great discussion on homeless figures Michael Reid hopefully going forward you'll explore issues in Louth and Meath and those who are sofa surfing fleeing domestic violence in hospital to hostile cycle and ask what are the council HSE social inclusion doing uh, and the experiences also of the frontline staff you might consider covering. Mm, Another listener Harry from Drogheda People would be more willing to donate to charities if the CEO of these charities weren't earning 200,000 or more a year. Okay, yeah. Uh, and we got a deep end need via Twitter. I think Sinn Fein probably have an office in the LMFM building. Oh, okay. Where is that? I don't know. We've, we've, no, we've no room for them, yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, 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 they've probably taken up uh, the Fine Gael office. Do you remember Fine Gael used to have a, an office in the LMFM building? Uh, they used to be on the radio every day. I think Enda Kenny was in here uh, maybe 10 times a year sitting in the studio. Uh, and uh, that was back in the day, of course, when they were in opposition. Okay, uh, another listener. This is Jim from Navin. And Jim phoned in to say that while the recession is supposedly over and there seems to be lots of money around the place, if you hear, if you hear everybody talking, uh, yes, we have this homeless problem which sees no sign of being solved. Can this not be treated as an emergency? What about the government and the promise to have all homeless people out of hotel accommodation uh, that was made I think in 2017 wasn't it the, mm. the, you know there would the no longer be homeless people in hotels yeah. and Jim is wondering what has happened to that yeah. promise yeah um, <laughs> yeah uh, it was uh, June I think of 2017 was uh, to be the date that was uh, to end uh, but uh, it's uh, a little bit uh, 
Uh, failed, I think is the word. All right, listen, hold that thought for a moment. Uh, we're going to talk about something else uh, because uh, we've this ongoing feud in Drogheda. People will be concerned uh, this morning to hear the reports on LMFM news of two separate incidents, Gardaí believe, are linked to that feud. Another petrol bomb attack which took place in Money Moore and also uh, some sheds uh, that were set on fire in Leah Brega. The chief fire officer in County Loud uh, is Eamon Wolf and He's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. I don't think uh, your crews were needed for that petrol bomb, but the sheds was a, a different story. Exactly, yeah. We were called at about half past one to the uh, to the sheds. Uh, there were three of them on fire at the same time, so that was obviously arson um, at the at the back of uh, houses in Labriga, just next to Moneymore. Um, and there were, like, these could be seen well on the way to the incident there were fairly large fires um, and when the, the crew arrived uh, there was a strong smell of petrol there um, there was an additional hazard in as well that there was a container of petrol in, in one of the one of the sheds so uh, it was tricky enough for operation they were there for uh, about an hour Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On the half, um to access them and uh, extinguish the, the fires, which were quite large. Um, but as I said, the fact that the three of them were going at the same time was almost certainly an arson attack. Mm, yeah, and the fact uh, that an accelerant uh, was obviously used uh, feeds into that uh, theory. You sound almost yes, certain yes. that that is the case, and we are certain yeah, that there... Strong, there was a strong smell yeah. of mm-hmm. there, uh, and uh, the guards were there as well, the armed response unit, so uh, I think it was being taken fairly seriously. Um, and uh, luckily, they, there was no... Uh, life safety risk in terms of the houses themselves being involved but um, like we view it as a serious enough incident yes. Right uh, I gather you're uh, noticing uh, the increase in uh, these type of incidents I, I know you weren't called to that petrol bomb attack in Moneymore last night but you've certainly been called out uh, to petrol bomb attacks in recent weeks uh, is this putting a strain on services? 
it is. Uh, and uh, the problem with these type of incidents is that they divert the brigade from other, uh, you know, you could, we could have a house fire with persons reported trapped in the house uh, and we that incident could come in and we'd be diverted going to these things. Uh, and as you, as you mentioned, there have been quite a few of them over the last three or four weeks. Uh, we would just hope that we'd come to an end uh, because it is diverting the fire brigade from more, from more important work. As somebody who dedicates his life to putting out fires, you must find it very, very frustrating, if not confusing, to think uh, of people who intentionally start them. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, you know, obviously there's no talking to these people um, and it's there's a pattern there for three or four weeks. Um but uh, you know our colleagues in the our Garda Shikana mm. appear to be doing a good job in, in 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 trying to bring all this under control, and we hope that will continue. Tell us a, a little bit more though uh, uh, about what these people risk doing. I don't want you to comment on the feud or what's going on, but we do know uh, because uh, we've been told by the Garda that quite often what is happening is that somebody owes a drug dealer money; uh, they can't afford to pay that money back, so there's an attack on the family home because the family won't or can't pay the debt for the drug user. Uh, But when somebody throws a a petrol bomb at a house, uh, uh, the intention may be as a warning or uh, as an act of intimidation to try and get somebody to pay up that money. But what is the risk? Are are they at risk of killing people? Of course they are. Um, You know, if there was no petrol bomb uh, thrown at the house, uh, if there was an ordinary fire uh, in the kitchen at night, uh, that's a, that is a, a risk to the uh, uh, to the safety of people in bed upstairs. It's worse where, where there's a much larger fire resulting from a petrol bomb, which immediately ignites furniture, and and the fire is so intense that it's much harder for the occupants upstairs to get out. So it is a, it is by much higher uh, risk even than ordinary house fires, which are the highest risk that we have because most people die in, in house fires than in any other type of incident. Right, and quite often these attacks are late at night when people are upstairs in bed asleep and uh, the accelerant is thrown through a downstairs window causing a, a fire. Uh, so that is the risk. It's completely that irresponsible, completely... Uh, there's no defence whatsoever for us. Would you liken it to firing a gun at somebody? Uh, it would almost amount to the same thing um, if there are people upstairs in the house, yes. It's just that it's food for thought because, you know, I think there's a lot of bravado involved in all of this and people are are trying to, you know, show their muscle and that sort of thing. And perhaps they don't intend to kill somebody. But uh, as the chief fire officer for the county, uh, you're putting that down as a a marker for people today to tell them that if they do throw a petrol bomb at a house, uh, they might as well shoot somebody. Or try to shoot Absolutely. The, the, the worst risk, uh, fire safety risk, is when people are asleep. Uh, and doing that is just indefensible. And this is a direct life safety threat to people. Okay. And that's as strong a message, I, I suppose, as can be given to people. And thank you for uh, making it here on the programme with us uh, this morning. Eamon Wolfe is uh, the Chief Fire Officer with Louth County Council Fire and Rescue Services. Now let's go back to some more of your thoughts and some of the comments that you have there, Marie. John phoned in. He was listening to the interview with Sinead McGraw and just says that he is wonders why shouldn't workers be entitled to join whatever union they want, that surely the HSE should deal with 
whichever union is representing the workers. Right, and this is the NASRA branch of the yes. PNA that Sinead represents, uh, which is ambulance uh, personnel uh, who are planning a, a one-day strike on the 19th of December. Yes, and Seamus from Drogheda has been listening to the news uh, in relation to the ASTI ballot and says, uh, that's the ASTI trade union, and says that what really concerns him is the number that voted in the ballot. He says, mm. is for, he's hearing it was only 58% and he says that is staggering when you could take into account the consequences down the line that perhaps there could be strike action and the implications this would be, this would have for children in school. Alright, well we'll uh, mention that too, Asti, when we speak with him a little bit later on for you, Seamus. Yes, and we had another caller from John in Dundalk and John says that Gardaí will never make inroads into the dangerous driving incidents because they simply don't have the numbers to be able to police the roads properly. He says he can't remember the last time that he met a checkpoint on his travels okay, and that was well, in relation yeah. to your interview mm. with Lucia there. Yeah, well they are there I, I know I came across a, a few in the last few months myself uh, but they are there uh, and I suppose uh, that's the nature of uh, these things they're random if you like uh, and you may or may not come across them and it's up to you to take that risk or not. Final word then to John from Navin who says that the government can't win Michael no. because everybody's looking for them to give money mm. uh, in all areas and yet you have the fiscal council giving them a slap on the wrist. How can you balance it all out, he wonders. Mm, okay, well, I think uh, I heard Pascal Donoghue make that exact argument uh, a little bit earlier on today, but uh, thanks uh, for that. Well, John was mm. ahead of him because mm. he phoned yep. in yesterday. Very right, good, John. Thank you indeed. All right, uh, thanks, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. At the beginning of the week, we heard from Airgrid about its next next project, locally at least, the Airgrid Capital Project 966, as it has been named. And we expected that we would hear from campaigners on this, and that has transpired to be the case. Paragor Riley, spokesperson with the North East Pile and Pressure campaign, is on the line now to make his comments with us. Good morning. And thanks for joining us. Uh, this is uh, to bring about a, a security of supply, the supply of electricity that comes from the west of the country to the east of the country. And in order to ensure that it, it can handle more power coming across the existing lines there to connect the substation at Dunstown in County Kildare to the substation in Woodland, County Meath. That's correct, Michael. Uh, good morning. So, uh, there, there are two 400 kV lines uh, coming from Money Point, uh, one into Dunstown, you say, and one into Woodland, and, and they want to join join those up. Um, and they have rolled out the uh, the project earlier this week, and they're talking about uh, a number of different options as to how they will um, get that uh, get those lines joined up. And they're taking so, a, a very different approach to this project, it would seem, than they have with previous projects such as the North South Interconnector. Exactly, Michael, and, and I think it's it's a very relevant project for us because they are 400 kV lines, so they're the exact same extra high voltage line as as being discussed for the North-South Interconnector. Uh, but from the outset, they're saying they're taking an approach where they will consult with the landowners and with the communities, and they will look at um, a number of options, including undergrounding uh, the line in full, and they will look at the economic impacts, the socio-economic impacts, and the deliverability. 
And from our side, I guess these are all the things that we would have asked for many, many years ago for the North-South Interconnector, which which never really happened. Mm. So, and, um, and David Martin of Airgrid was in here uh, on Monday, and I said to him, uh, you're going to see some eyebrows raised about this. Why the change in approach? And he explained it to us in that. He was saying that these are options at a much earlier stage than they were at when they went public uh, with uh, the plans for this north-south interconnector uh, and that an awful lot of work had been done uh, on formulating a a plan by the experts and they applied their expertise and came forward with what they believed to be feasible options. He's saying that they're presenting all of the options now and that some of them may not prove to be feasible. Well, I think, you know, it's, you know, they're very disingenuous comments because they're not out in the connector. There were not uh, a whole lot of plans carried out before they went to the public. They went straight out with an assumption that overground was the only way forward. We know from Freedom of Information um, correspondence, we see when they, when they started the project and what their plans were. And they just decided up front to go ahead with the North-South Interconnector without any consultation. And it wasn't a fact that they looked at a whole lot of options before they went to the public. So for, from our standpoint, uh, you know, there's a lot of learnings there from them. They haven't gone anywhere with the North-South Interconnector. And nothing has happened since 2005. And they really need to uh, take the same approach as they are seem to be taking now with, with this Dunstown to Woodland line and apply it to the North-South Interconnector. Mm. Um, and the interesting things we find are that they now they're now saying if if they're serious about undergrounding being an option for for the Dunstown to to Woodland Line, uh, you know that's sixty kilometres long. They were saying uh, for the North South Interconnector, ten kilometres would be the most they could underground. So things seem to have shifted quite significantly in terms of their acceptance of undergrounding being possible. And they really need, as I say, to go back and apply this approach to the North-South Interconnector and then there might be some progress. If they were to advance this project underground, it would be one of the biggest underground connections in the world, wouldn't it? No, it it would not. Uh, That's not the case at all, uh, uh, Michael. And I'm not sure where they're coming from on that one. There are many other projects uh, that are uh, over 100, 150 kilometres long. In terms of the power capacity, uh, and they haven't stated what capacity they, they want to put uh, in this line, uh, then obviously the higher they go on that, maybe there are less projects, but it would not be one of the first in the world. And from our standpoint, I mean, you have the east-west interconnector, uh, which is already in place coming from Rush to Woodlands, and that's 34 kilometres. So uh, even, even in Ireland, there are examples of, of, of uh, long lengths of underground cable. So for some reason, they've been hell-bent on sticking to the original plans in the North-South Interconnector, even though technology has moved on dramatically and even though costs have reduced a lot. Um, so um, from our standpoint, you know, we think they really need to stand back and, and look at the um, approach they're taking for this new line and apply it to the North-South Interconnector. And the sooner they do that, the better. Uh, and they put forward uh, a number of options which uh, they say they'll measure against a, a set of five criteria, uh, one of uh, them uh, being socio-economic, uh, which, uh, again, uh, is somewhat different than the approach taken to the north-south interconnector. Yeah, in, 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 uh, in Denmark, which we've used an example many years ago, uh, the government took a very strong um, policy direction that there had to be a socio-economic uh, analysis done 
So in other words, it had to benefit uh, the local people, it had to be accepted by the local people, and it had to make economic sense. And um, again, that's never been done for the North-South Interconnector. Likewise on deliverability. You know, the North-South Interconnector has not been delivered. The the timeline keeps being pushed back. and It was supposed to be critical for 2018-19. Then it went back to 2021, and now it's gone back to 2023. So if you apply those criteria to, to the project we've been working on for so long, um, then they would have no option but to, to, to reconsider and start again and look at undergrounding. Um, and a related point, uh, Michael, is that very recently, um, for the North South Interconnector, they updated their um, generation um, forecasts mm. for the North of Ireland and, and for the Republic. And there's been a dramatic uh, change in availability of, of power in the North and all of these uh, claims in the past that the lights would go out in Northern Ireland, etc., uh, are now come to naught because uh, there's going to be a surplus in the north for the next 10 years. And the need for this interconnector, and particularly the scale of the size that they were that, that they were talking about, uh, is no longer required if, you, if they look at their own data and look at their own results. So we're calling for the, the relevant minister to really yeah. stand back and have an, a reanalysis of the project and, yeah, and this really, really have a proper approach to what's needed rather than what Airgrid are stating for the last 10 years. Well, just for our listeners, this is a conversation we had on the programme yesterday with Sinn Féin's uh, Patrick Tobin about uh, the annual generation capacity statement, which, as you say, uh, estimates uh, there will be a surplus of power uh, available in Northern Ireland over the next decade. Uh, and he, he was making the argument that this made the case for undergrounding. Uh, do you think it, it makes the case for scrapping the upgrade of uh, the connection between North and South? Well, it makes the case for a much smaller project at most, Michael. I think, I mean, Ergo would probably argue even if there isn't a need for as much power in the north anymore, they will probably argue this security of supply issue, that there's only one line going up uh, at the moment. Mm. And our view on that is we'd be more than happy if they want to put in uh, a proper scaled underground cable. We, we were saying 500, 700 megawatts, which, by the way, would dramatically reduce uh, any of the cost uh, uh, figures that have been put out there uh, and we think if they want to go ahead with that that's fine but absolutely there's no need for what they have been proposing from from day one uh, when, when they look at their own figures now. Well without the power from the south there'd be a, a deficit of power in the north uh, and uh, that, that's the issue that there will be a surplus so long as they get the power through the north-south interconnector. But at the moment, there is a line there already, Michael, and, and it's, uh, what, what is required in the north is, is more than sufficiently being applied through, through, the, through the existing line. But that comes but back to the issue of security of supply and, uh, uh, and the, the maintenance of the existing line and uh, the lifespan of that line. And what we're talking about is lines that will be in existence for much more than the next decade and undoubtedly will supply the people of Northern Ireland with electricity for decades to come. Yes, yeah, so if, 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 if they, from a security supply position, if they want to have a second line, in our view, that's fine. But in terms of the uh, the importance of that line and the amount of power going through, mm. 
it's going to be much, much more reduced uh, than they were previously saying when they look when you look at the supply existing well, you, already well, in Northern well, Ireland. Well, you need a surplus, don't you? I, I mean, there's yeah, no but there point was, in there going ahead with a project like this unless you can deliver a surplus. Uh, and without this line, Northern Ireland is facing a, a doomsday scenario because in the event of a, a no-deal Brexit, for example, uh, then that line uh, wouldn't be uh, available in terms of supplying power or may not be available in terms of supplying power to Northern Ireland and they're talking about the scenario of bringing in generators on barges in the sea. Yeah, but it's all crazy stuff, Michael, if they look at their own numbers. That's, that's my whole point. Without the new north-south interconnector, even with the existing line, firstly, there's very little, uh, very little of it goes to, to north in terms of the total. And even with the existing line, they're in major surplus situation for, in the north for the next 10 years. Even in the highest demand situations, they will have a surplus. So you could argue that there's mm. no need for the north-south interconnector second well, line at all. They say but demand will increase is, by 15 to 47 percent, uh, and they, that's on current estimates. Sorry, Michael. I, I didn't that demand will that. increase by between 15 and 47 percent. Yeah, but that's factored in to their forecast, and, yeah. and even factoring in their highest demand, which is the one you've mentioned, they will be in surplus even 10 years from now. They will be in surplus without any new interconnector and even allowing for one or two mm. of these power stations to close. Yes. Uh, I mean, the major power station in Kilroot, is, 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 they, they were saying it was fine to close even this year or next year at the latest. So it's a total, total absolute change in, in, in the numbers and in the need versus what they've been saying for the but last it, 10 years. Is it not prudent to have a, a surplus of that size? OK, you make the point, in 10 years from now, uh, they'll have more electricity available to them than they need. But what in about 20 years from now? Do you start again and go through this whole process in 20 years' time? No, you don't start again. But, I mean, there, there's, there's a limit to what surplus you, you should have because storing storage of energy is very, very expensive and not easy to do. So you can only work within a certain range of surpluses. And I think what, what AirGrid are statutory bound to do is look at a 10-year cycle. They can't look outside of that because it has cost implications if they, if they get it totally wrong. So 10 years is a fair estimate. It's their approach. It's the way they're doing it. And on their own numbers... There is not another line needed to go from north to south over the next 10 years. We're saying, OK, if you do want a line for security supply, then put in one at the right scale and uh, put it underground. And there's plenty of time to do that. And the other interesting thing that's come out only yesterday, Michael, is that the Northern Ireland, uh, Sony, the equivalent of everywhere in Northern Ireland, have come out with a 10-year um, uh, grid strategy for the next 10 years. And interestingly, the cost of an overhead line um, for the north-south interconnector, if you take the numbers that they have published, goes up to 500 million. They're saying 286 million at the moment for the north-south interconnector overhead, but yeah. their actual numbers in today, it, the, the numbers from yesterday are saying 500 million, which is the same cost as, a, as, as the underground cable. So things are changing very rapidly in terms of AirGrid's That's own mad, published figures when they're reviewing it. That's and really it's, mad. It's isn't really, it? really interesting. Like the, the price has nearly doubled. Well, you see, the reason the price has nearly doubled, Michael, is that we have asked for the last ten years to break down that cost of two hundred eighty-six million, mm. and it, it, it has never. They've never come forward with saying what the cost is, and what it strikes me as, as happening now, they're they're being pushed harder. Uh, to be precise on their numbers, they published the one for Northern Ireland, and lo and behold, it's 
500 million euros uh, in terms of cost okay. for, for the proposal that they have in place. Yeah, and possibly worth mentioning as well, when we spoke with Airgrid during the week, they were saying uh, that the estimate for the next project, uh, this 966 project between the two substations is between 110 and 190 million euro, but that does not take into account delays or court proceedings or legal affairs for that matter. So uh, that yeah. uh, is something that undoubtedly will be factored in, given our experience of these things. But we'll leave it there for the moment, Parag, and thank you. And just say, Michael, just very quick, mm-hmm. just say that five hundred million does not include any delays. Or any, it's just a straightforward cost for 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 uh, establishment and construction. Okay. Uh, so it's it's one that that we will be following up on. All right. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Parag O'Reilly, spokesperson for the Northeast Pylon Pressure Campaign. Call Michael now. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Friday for our review of uh, the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath Oireachtas Report. We begin a roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Tuesday. The House debated the proposed legislation to introduce abortion and independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick told the Chamber that such a move will see hundreds of women from the North have abortions in the Republic and he is opposed to that. In 2017, the UK government announced that they are going to publicly pay for abortions in Northern Ireland. Since that has been introduced, between 40 and 60% of an increase in abortions in Northern Ireland. Also, our Minister for Health, Simon Howes, is also trying to find a way to pay for residents in Northern Ireland to pay for the abortions to happen in Ireland. That also concerns me. I fear what is going to happen to this country. In the wake of the referendum, it shows that 59% of, 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 of the people of Ireland are opposing for the taxpayers to do this funding. The, in the current form of the, of the bill, the full payment of this bill is going to be paid by the taxpayers. So what we are actually doing here now at the moment is we are actually forcing our taxpayers to pay for the abortions. I fear for this country. Ireland, to me, was one of the most safest countries in the world to have a child. Have a child. And now, all of a sudden, what my big fear at the moment is I said, yeah, what's, what's happening in Northern Ireland is, is what's going to happen in the Republic of Ireland. And I'm telling you at the moment is all we're doing now at the moment is it will open up a floodgate to have abortion in demand in Ireland. During the same debate, Independent TD for Me the West, Pather Tobin, said evidence to hand shows gender-selective abortion in some countries has led to imbalances in the population and that should not be allowed to happen here. It is estimated that there are 100 million missing women in the world today with regards to gender selection abortion and infanticide. And just to give some of the facts with regards to that, by the generation born in 2000, between 2000 and 2004, it was 124 men for every 100 women. In some provinces, it's at unprecedented levels and it's at 130 men for every woman in those particular provinces. In countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Pakistan, India, Armenia, Azerbaijan, they're having major problems with it. In India, there is a radical gender ratio divergence at the moment because of the fact that for economic reasons, for social reasons and for cultural reasons, unfortunately and shockingly, they favour sons rather than daughters. And so much so, the Labour MP, Naz Shah, The Shadow Women and Equality Minister in Britain has now called for the ban 
of gender selection abortion in Britain. Fianna Fáil TD for me East, Thomas Byrne told the Dáil that despite differences of opinion over the principle of abortion, the Oireachtas is obliged to honour the wishes of the people as expressed in the referendum last May. Overwhelmingly, uh, whether I or, or others like it or not, overwhelmingly the public voted for it. And I think that it then, it then is incumbent on us at this juncture in terms of the first legislation that's passed after uh, the bill is, 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 is put before the doll after the referendum, it is incumbent on us to faithfully execute what I think we can discern to be the will of the people as expressed in that referendum. A political will rather than simply the straightforward legal will of the people which is to amend the constitution, but the political will of the people was certainly evidenced uh, by, their, by their listening to and taking part in the debates. And I have to say, um, as someone who spoke on the media during the referendum, I have to say I think that our, our broadcast media, our, our written media, I think did a fantastic job. I, I, I had no complaints whatsoever. Uh, and, and certainly the public were able to discern themselves uh, the information uh, that was available and make the decision themselves. And that's a decision the people took. We are bound by it, Ken Corla. The recent announcement by onboard Planola that a planned rehabilitation centre at Beliver County Meath will require planning permission was raised in the Shannon on Thursday. Fine Gael Senator Ray Butler called on the Department of the Environment to ensure that the appropriate piece of legislation cannot be enacted unless it is properly publicised. Meath County Council planning section said it did not need planning permission. And basically what was used was uh, section 5 to change the usage from a nursing home to a drug rehabilitation facility. And basically it wasn't publicised and went ahead and nobody knew in the community, the community of Beliver didn't know until leaks came out from the local authority and it was terrible to see how split the community was. It is now back with Mead County Council uh, if Narconon are, putting, are looking for planning permission again. And this facility will be using drug-related methods that are not HSE or HICWA approved. And basically, it's beside schools, playground, uh, community centre and a play school. And what I want, Leader, is I want the Minister for Local Government to put in legislation to stop Section 5 being used and not publicised. Legislation is currently going through the Oireachtas to tackle bogus self-employment and zero-hours contracts. Social Protection Minister and Fine Gael TD for Me the East, Regina Doherty, said certain sectors will be targeted and called on people to report cases where bogus self-employment is being practised by ruthless employers. The vast majority of employers in this country um, are good. We recognise within the scope department there are some that are not and that's why we've changed our practices this year to have proactive inspections and we're st- targeting uh, specific Um, industries. One of them is the security industry, one of them is the construction industry, one of them is the delivery industry, one of them is hairdressers. There's there's so many sections of society that need to be inspected. But the very last thing I will say, everybody stands up and tells me that anecdotally they have buckets of evidence. And when I ask you to give me referrals, they never ever come. And they don't get made to scope either. So I'll again put on the hat the record of the House is that if anybody knows of vulnerable people who they think are being made, um, declare themselves as self-employed, give me the details and I will inspect. 
The allocation of funds to develop what's known as the Westgate Vision in Drogheda was raised in the Dáil on Tuesday by Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster. She asked on Taoiseach Leo Varadkar how much will be allocated and when will that happen. Drogheda has been identified as one of five regional cross-border drivers along with Sligo, who did get a specific allocation of five million, along with Letter Kenny, who did get a specific allocation of one million, and along with Dundalk, who did get a specific allocation of just over half a million, but no specific allocation for Drahada's Westgate vision. Now you can understand our concern, Taoiseach, given that you and your government have relegated Drahada to third tier status in your plan. But can you stand up and clarify for the people of Drahada when what funding we will get for Drogheda's Westgate Vision and when we will get it. What is the funding allocated? Thank you, Deputy. I think um, it was done in different tiers. So so, so, so some projects have an allocation demand against them. The biggest single one for Waterford, six million uh, projects in in Ballina, in Castlebar, Kilkenny uh, and in Dundalk. A number don't have an allocation against them yet uh, and it's intended that that will be allocated next year. And that response from Antichuk Leo Varadkar to a question from Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath, Melda Munster, concludes our Louth Meath Oroctus summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the House of the Oroctus Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. And Ken Murray will have another Louth Meath Oroctus report for us in around the same time on next Friday's programme. The reports are brought to you by the House of the Oroctus. Michael Reed on LMFM. In September, the government tabled proposals uh, to restore the pay of some 60,000 so-called new entrant public servants. These are people who were recruited since 2011 and who were on lower pay than longer-serving public servants. Yesterday, the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland rejected the proposals. The vote was 53 to 47% based on a turnout of 58%. Breda Lynch is uh, the ASTI president and joins us now. And good morning to you and thank you for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. morning. Uh, what, morning. What, what, what do you believe this means? Well, I believe it means that uh, our members believe that pay equality is a, is a principle. They, there aren't degrees of equality and they want to stand by their colleagues who are on this lower paid scale and that's what it's about. It's about kind of an intergenerational solidarity. A lot of the people who vote in this ballot actually have nothing to gain uh, from the proposals. They're not affected by it, but they're showing solidarity with uh, their colleagues who are on this lesser pay scale. Uh, and are they showing solidarity with uh, people who are in the public service outside of uh, the teaching profession? It's it's difficult to explain, but there is a difference. This affected teachers more than other public servants. The proposals will, by and large, bring about pay equality for most public servants. But the reality is we were in a different position because we were recruiting when there was an embargo on public service recruitment because the numbers were expanding in schools and we needed teachers. So we have people who are much longer on this lower scale, and therefore it has affected us more. Also... By removing two points on the scale, which these proposals do, they fail to address a particular issue for teachers, which is that teachers had a degree allowance, and that uh, are they sorry uh, an allowance for their teaching qualification, the HDIP or PME qualification. So there are two issues. That allowance hasn't been reinstated, 
And teachers always started on the third point of the scale in recognition of their serve, their um, training. And now they're starting on point one. So that, that creates a, an inequality that isn't there for all public servants. Okay, uh, so you're happy just to represent teachers uh, regardless of the outcome for other public servants? Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. Like the, the Public Service Committee of ICTU represent all public servants. And, uh, you know, we would argue within that that, you know, this solves the problem. They've done a good job for most mm. public well, servants. Well, it's not full equality. And I suppose the question is how much is the cost of full equality? Well, I, I don't have a figure for that amount, mm. but um, it's... It's, it's a principle, um, and we believe that, you know, there is a crisis. But in, you're, you're, in you're suggesting it's more of a principle for teachers. Well, uh, my job is to represent teachers. Yeah, no, it's no, obviously no. other <laughs> trade unionists' job to represent their members. Absolutely, yes. No, 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 but I was just establishing that point because I think people will see it from both sides uh, when they're not... Uh, a, a, a part to the dispute uh, yeah. and that uh, there's a problem for the government in being fair to all and sure. affording all of this for everybody. Yeah, oh I, I understand that you know, but I do believe if if you value something you have to pay for it and there is a crisis in education at the moment that we have lots of classrooms out there where there aren't qualified teachers to, to teach the children. Mm. Um, you know, it is becoming a huge problem that we cannot find, you know, Schools are advertising jobs and nobody's applying for them because they're all gone to Dubai. Um, you know, young teachers feel, you know, this generation, they, they don't put up with nonsense. A lot of them just feel very angry about well, it. Would it make much difference? I mean, are they not just going there because of the money that they can earn in these places? Well, I mean, is 3000 or, or 5000 going to make any difference anyway? Well, I, I believe a lot of them feel very hard done by, and it is about the fact that uh, somebody who qualified a year before them is earning more mm. than them. Well, a lot uh, of people who aren't teachers would feel that they've paid for their education and that perhaps there should be a loyalty clause attached to that education. Well, I actually think that mightn't be a bad idea. If you could guarantee yeah. that when people came out of college, they'd have a job. A lot of the problems for teachers is that they, you know, they come out and they get kind of casual hours and, OK, there's this scarcity in sub-subjects, but a mm. lot of teachers are working 10 and 12-hour contracts and they can't live on it. So... There's two issues. One is that um, <coughs> the lower pay and the other is these kind of casual contracts that have kind of crept into education that are doing a lot of damage. Right. Uh, you're in dispute uh, over this issue for a, a long time. Last time round, uh, there was an industrial action. You lost a lot of members to the TOI. The TOI are accepting this offer. Is that part of how you'll consider the next move in terms of your response? Well, in terms of response, uh, you know, our members have taken, as you say, we have taken action and have, you know, we were, we lost pay and we were penalised further under the FEMPI legislation and we lost our freeze of increments, which is still ongoing for our members. So we have taken principal stand. We are also in a position where the, uh, one of the other teacher unions, the primary school teachers, have voted against it. So at our last convention, our members committed to working with other unions. So that, that's kind of a change and it does dictate where we go from here. So we will be consulting with our members. Our executive will look at this and we will take time 
to see what the best strategy is. Yeah, but how committed do you think your members are? Like, I mean, you've a turnout of 58% and uh, a narrow margin in support of uh, the position, which is to reject the offer. But last time round, your members were steadfast until their pay was cut and then they caved in. Uh, and many of them left your trade union to go to the trade union where the offer was available to them. Yeah, well, you know, people will make choices, but uh, we still have 17,000 members who feel very strongly about this. Um, uh, you know, there, there was part of that at the time was that younger members were threatened with um, that they were going to lose their permanent contracts. Like the, the, that FEMPI legislation was very, very threatening. And some of the issues for younger members who, who did leave was about uh, that if they were out, Side the agreement, they wouldn't get their contracts of indefinite duration, mm. whereas um, they would if they were in the agreement. So, so there was a there was a dirty game going on. You know, the government play hardball, mm. and I suppose that's their job. But our job is to defend our members and to look for what's right. Mm. And uh, you know. Uh, and there's like, another issue, is there not, Breda? Uh, sorry, Mike. Yeah, yeah. go I'm ahead. Sorry, there is another issue, is there not, uh, for the younger members or the newer entrants, as uh, the case may be. They may say this is not full of equality, but you can't sneeze at 3,000. Uh, and if you go off the job, uh, you get nothing. Well, there is that. And you see, this, these proposals are for all public servants. And we have rejected the, the principle of, you know, this is not pay equality. So what happens next will depend on whether they lose it or not. You know, it's only when you repudiate or take industrial action uh, that, that... So that's the next decision. This decision was saying this... These proposals do not solve the problem. This is not full pay equality. And that's what our members are saying in the result of this ballot. Okay. so what next? Uh, The executive will meet to consider the outcome of the vote. uh, Yes. uh, And and make announcements when, would you hope? Well, we're not sure because because we have committed to working with other unions, that kind of makes it more a little bit more complex. So we will be in, in discussion with our members and with the other unions as to what is the best way forward. So um, a joint campaign, we believe, is more effective. So we look forward to working with the other unions to try and bring about justice for all our members. All right. Well, that uh, may come as some comfort, uh, in particular to parents uh, of uh, secondary school students listening to us uh, this morning. But we leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, today. Breda Lynch is uh, the president of ASTI. That's the Association of Secondary School Teachers in Ireland. And she brings our programme to its conclusion today because our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, let me remind you that there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to... Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael, hope you have a lovely weekend and God willing you'll join us for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.